How many people here have gotten lost before? How about as a, <laughs> never, right answer, right answer. Um, who, who here has gotten lost as a kid that you remember? A couple people? Yeah, so I remember, I don't remember a lot of my childhood. I remember a couple things. Uh, I do remember getting lost in Boscov's when there used to be a toy section where now the mattress section is. So it's eight or nine or ten. And I was with my grandparents, but specifically my grandpa, while my grandmother did whatever grandmothers do in Boscov's. And, uh, you know, there's multiple aisles in department stores. And at one point, I was in one aisle, and my grandfather was in another aisle. And he wasn't the most spry guy. Um, And I thought I lost him. And it was just that matter of perfect timing where you're in one aisle and then you go over to the next aisle and he's going that way. But it was like that for like two minutes. And so I was trained. I was taught that if you get lost, go to the service desk and say whatever. And so I'm like, hey, my name's Justin Boyer. Uh, My grandparents are John and Blondie Boyer. I'm lost. So it comes over the speakerphone with the grandparents of Justin Boyer. Please pick him up in the toy section. And I'm not really lost. My grandfather's over. And then as soon as that announcement hits, you see him shuffling. And he's like, oh, there he is. But man, before he got to me, my grandmother got to me. And hell hath no fury as a grandmother towards her husband who thought that uh, he lost their grandson. Um, and so it was kind of a comical memory that, uh, that I have uh, as far as being lost. Today we're going to talk about the lost Messiah briefly as we continue in our sermon series about questions and uh, both questions that Jesus asks of us, questions that we're asking of one another, questions that we ask of Jesus. And I'm looking for the clicker. Is the clicker back there, Ron? Could I have that? It'd be great. Uh, Luke 2, if you want to turn your Bibles, thank you, to Luke 2. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that is both written and alive and active. We ask to receive your word today, both from the text and from your spirit. May we be a people that minister love and grace and truth to one another as we gather in your house. We both desire to uh, give you everything we have and also confess our need for you and our dependence on you. And so we enter into your word joyfully um, and also expectantly to see and hear from you, God. Um, Help us to have ears to hear. We pray this in your name. Amen. So Luke chapter 2, let's start in verses 39 to 45, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So this is after Jesus has been born. He's a youngster. He comes back. um, He gets uh, in Jerusalem. He is circumcised. He is named on the eighth day, I believe. Uh, And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it, thinking he was in their company. They traveled on for a day. 
Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Very serious question. What is Mary and Joseph's uh, favorite vehicle of choice? What vehicle is this? Caravan. Dad pastor joke right there. Caravan. So it's important to realize, obviously I didn't do it, it's just a joke. But it's important to realize that Mary and Joseph are not bad parents in this portion of scripture. They, didn't, they weren't ignorant. They weren't like not thinking about their kids. It's a different time and a different context than what we think. So usually when people travel, especially for pilgrimage festivals, they usually traveled in groups. This was for protection. This was for camaraderie. This is a religious, sacred festival that involves not just self, but community. And so as we listen to that story about, you know, Jesus, they couldn't find Jesus. Like, what do you mean you couldn't? It's not like he's in the third row seat of the Dodge Caravan. And oh, all of a sudden, after a day, I realize he's not there. He would have been part of um, the caravan that would have been uh, not terribly long, but long enough that, oh, he's probably back there with Aunt Miriam or somebody. And so they're not being bad parents in this scripture reference verse. Important to, to realize. Uh, a, a, another important part of this is, uh, how old was he in this passage? Twelve. That's key to something that's coming up in the passage. Um, so in... Jewish rabbinic first century culture, we have certain documents, and they're called the Mishnah, that was oral tradition about how the community worked, but it was written down. It's one of the first things that was written down uh, as far as oral traditions was the Mishnah, and you might also hear the word Talmud here and there. According to the Mishnah, which would have been the community standard of growing, they had an educational system. And in this educational system, there were certain like markers in a child's life. Uh, most of these, because of the culture at the time, not all of them were more so for the males, but um, they had these different markers during the education and the growing up, especially if you were going to be training to be a rabbi, which not a lot of people did. A lot of people, a lot of students that make it past the second level here. But they, what they would do is that at five years old, you were uh, and, uh, expected and that you would learn the story of scripture. So they would start to memorize and to learn the Torah. At year, at year 10, now that you know the story, now let's begin learning how to interpret the story and understand what it means. At age 13, the bar mitzvah, uh, this is when you would become a, a, a man, so to speak. And now you were obliged or you were at the age of accountability, which means now at this section, you were expected to start to fulfilling the commands that came from the story that you were now interpreting. 15 years old, interpretation of theology from other rabbinic teachings. So other teachers went, they had this interpretation of the scripture. Now you needed to think about why did they think about this in order to understand the story and the theology of the scripture. Then 18 years old, marriage material, 20, pursuing vocation, 30 years old, if you stayed in the rabbinic tradition, now you have you possibly had the authority and the ability to teach others or to become a rabbi. This would have been something that Jesus would have grown up in. Okay, this would have been a context they would have grown up in. And as far as we know, when do, when do we think that Jesus actually began his ministry official? Around 30, which makes sense in the cultural context. But how old is he here? 12. So he's not quite uh, a man yet, so to speak. But he is in this stage of interpreting the story and, and understanding these questions. So they come down, Pilgrim's Festival, have the festival, Passover, one of the th- uh, three big festivals 
Everybody goes back in a caravan. After a day, mom and dad are like, oh, junk, we lost Jesus. Look for him, can't find him. Where do they go? They go back to Jerusalem to try to find where Jesus is. Again, Mary and Joseph are not bad parents. This would have been a semi-normal thing. Jesus might have been a little bit of a punk, um, but he was also he was also uh, 12 years old. So that's important for the next part. Luke 2, 46 to 49. After three days, they found him at the temple courts. So they left. They were on uh, the journey back to Nazareth for a day. They realize that he's not there. They come back a day, and then they're looking for him on the third day, and they find him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know? I had to be in my father's house. This part of the scripture, we have this uh, juxtaposition of um, the extraordinary student who is found in an ordinary context. An extraordinary student who's found in an ordinary context. He's an extraordinary student. Again, um, don't jump ahead. We know about his birth. We're kind of in on who he is. But think about the context that he would have been living in and the people trying to understand who this child is, even his mom and dad, that he is the Messiah. But what does that mean? What does that mean? So we see in this text that he was an extraordinary student. Uh, It doesn't say that he was teaching the scholars. It doesn't say that he was teaching. He was listening to the questions. He was engaging in dialogue and he was offering answers. So he might have been teaching in an indirect way. But some of the pictures that we see of Jesus kind of like as a 12-year-old telling, you know, Dennis Brubaker what to do uh, isn't necessarily what was going on there. He was engaged in a normal tradition of learning for his age, except he was an extraordinary student. He was a prodigy. This kid isn't just a normal kid. Like the people could realize that something special was about him in the way that he listened, in the way that he interacted, and in the way that he responded. And so he stood out. People were amazed. He stood out from the others. It was almost like the other people were displaced. They didn't kind of know their place because this 12-year-old is answering these questions or uh, providing questions himself in such a different kind of way. But this is a normal context, right? This is where, um, as a scholar put it, one day Jesus' questions will pierce to the very core of the religious establishment. And he will give answers of his own questions, but that is not today. He's an extraordinary student in an ordinary context. So in the Hebraic tradition that we just kind of talked about, the 10 to 12-year-old students would learn through questioning. This was part of trying to figure out how to interpret the scriptures. Uh, And there's the saying that goes that if you have two rabbi teachers, if you have two Jewish teachers, you have three interpretations of the scripture. Or if you have two Jews, you have three opinions. This idea that not even as we're talking about it, that I'll actually have two ways that you can think about this text. That is a commonplace way of understanding and seeking out the scriptures. Not necessarily a once and done black and white thing, but something that is true, that is good and is beautiful, but that draws you into the story of God and that ultimately transforms us. So as Jesus was here, he was just being a 12-year-old boy. 
an extraordinary 12-year-old boy, but a 12-year-old boy. Another quote, these students would also begin learning the Jewish art of questioning and answers at this time. Application and interpretation. Not just what the text says, but what it means and why it matters. In the rabbinic style, questioning a teacher was not seen as disrespectful or brazen. It was how learning occurred. It was how learning occurred. And so also there was the Hebraic tradition of these questions and answers. And what other culture was big at this time in Palestine and in Jerusalem? Besides the Hebraic culture that they came from, who were they under occupation by? Rome. So Rome, Greek, Greek philosophy, Greek uh, thinking, the Hellenistic Jews, if you've ever heard that. And we see here Jesus engaged directly in a type of question, okay, with his mom, which is dicey, uh, of all people. And it's called mayudic. Everybody say mayudic. So this is a Greek term, and it's kind of, if you've ever heard of Socrates, who's a philosopher, he uh, developed uh, 400 years prior this kind of a learning model of, you know what, let's figure this out by I ask a question, you ask a question back. That we're going to learn by asking questions upon questions. And here in the Hebraic and in the Greek tradition, we can see Jesus do just this. His mom asks a question. Does he answer it? Yes, but also no. He answers it with what? Another question. The Mayudic model, if you want to put a term on it was this. And as we will see later in his ministry, these answering questions with questions was a very uh, common way that Jesus interacted with people, especially the religious authorities that had uh, the power and the fame and the sway in that day. The, the term mayudic, like I said before, is Greek, and it comes from a, a Greek term that means midwife, that means to be a midwife. And so this idea that by uh, answering a question with a question or being in this dialogue rather than question, answer, question, answer, that something is being brought to light, that a new idea is being birthed that possibly could not have been birthed in another way. And so by this answering a question with a question, there's this new life that comes into being. So what is the new life that comes into being? What can we take from this as far as why does Jesus answer Mary's question with a question. And could you even imagine, like, so take, you know, son of God, everything else, but could you imagine if you were a kid and in your, your grandmother, uh, you, you got lost, grandmother worried sick, finds you, and you're like, where? And she's like, where were you? She's like, didn't you know that, na 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 that would not go over well. That would not go over well. I don't know what kind of disciplinary actions parents had back then, but there would have been some soap in my mouth or some something going on there. Um, different time, different people, <laughs> but yeah. So, um, what does this, what does this idea of a question followed by a question? Why were you searching for me? Jesus asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? We all know that first words are important. You know, when a baby, when a child says his, his or her first words, it's like, oh, if it's the mommy or daddy, the opposite parent always looks over kind of like in jealousy I'm just like, ah. One of the first words, Naomi, correct me if I'm wrong in this. One of the first words that Lana said, uh, we were in the van, and she's like, nom, 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 nom. romper. Nom, 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 nom. And so we remember, is that right? Was it Lana? 
So Lana's first word was romper. It's not like we go around saying that, but we remember that because that was a first word. You could debate if it was important, but it was significant to be like, did she just say romper? And so it was this idea of that whenever uh, children, whether they're ours or children that are around us, have their first words, that's an exciting time. Uh, it's, a, it's something we're like, oh, they're starting to speak. They're starting to get this. So not that Jesus was a baby when he spoke his very first words, but let's consider what the first recorded words of Christ are in the Gospels. Okay? The first recorded, so the red letter text in your Bible. So if we walk back chronologically, in the, in, the, in the text of um, how old Jesus was, the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, okay, when he addresses his disciples, so he's 30, but these are the first words, and so they're important. Gospel of John, first words of Jesus are, what are you seeking? First words are important. They have significance. They're monumental. The first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark was a proclamation as he starts his ministry proper. So after he comes out of the wilderness, after he comes out of the temptation, the first words in the Gospel of Mark recorded that Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. The first words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew in response to John not wanting to baptize Jesus because it didn't make sense. The first words of Jesus are, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then the earliest, chronologically speaking, words of Jesus would have been when he was 12 years old in this passage. First words in the Gospel of Luke, the earliest recorded words, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Didn't you know I needed to be in my father's house? And what is being brought to light in this asking a question out of a question is that his first words are birthing what he is all about, what he is ultimately here about. And what is it? His father. He's about his father. That he could have said a hundred other different things as the first words or the way that Luke kind of edits the story together. And yet we notice this, that this is what Jesus is about. He's about the father. And if you ever want to take an interesting uh, Greek trail, um, in the text itself, it actually doesn't say house or it doesn't say business. Those are good translations, but it's this weird phrase uh, that says, uh, in, in his blank father. Like, it doesn't say house there. It doesn't say business. It doesn't say will. It doesn't say any of that. There's actually... It almost sounds like this incomplete phrase. So when people are like, I don't understand what you're saying, it kind of makes sense. But the point is not what the um, action is or not what the add-on is, whether it's business or whether it's uh, his house, but the fact that it's the Father that Jesus is all about, that it's God himself that Jesus is all about. Is he about mission? Sure. Is he about loving neighbors? Sure. Is he about learning? Sure. Is he about all of these other good things? Yes. But what is Jesus ultimately about? He's about staying connected and being with his father, being with God. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. 
Then he went down to Nazareth with them, his parents, and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. There's this uh, phrase that uh, has become kind of trendy the past five years or so, um, especially as uh, newer generations, self-included. Um, question tradition and interpretations of old, this idea of not all who wander are lost, this idea of um, just because you're not thinking the way that I'm thinking doesn't mean that you're off the path. It doesn't mean that you're lost, that there can be, uh, within the grace of God, um, these boundaries that are also uh, very freeing to explore the kingdom of God and the truth of the gospel. And this phrase can be misused as a justification for narcissism, for delusional thinking, and for self-seeking means. But I think it fits well as we think about the lost Messiah today in our passage. And that's because even though Jesus wandered off in a certain sense, he wasn't lost. Even as questions surrounded him and people who loved him were wondering, where is he? What's going on with him? He remained found because of where he was. And where he was, was in a place of connection with the Father. And that's what Jesus was all about. Jesus isn't lost, even though he's lost, because he's connected to the Father. And as we, as the people of God, in different stages and areas of our life, question certain things and are even called into questioning by our Rabbi Jesus, by our Lord Jesus, We don't want to miss that key core component of staying connected with God and staying connected with the Father, even as we ask really hard questions, even as somebody looking from the outside says, oh, Justin's off his rocker. Even as you struggle with questions in your mind about all kinds of different things, that I don't know if I can even say that to the Christian community because it almost seems like blasphemy. Are we staying connected to God in all of that? Are we staying connected to the Father? Because again, even though Jesus was lost, he was not lost because he was always connected with the Father and he was in good hands with him. This this phrase, not all who wander are lost, is actually part of a bigger poem that's found where? Yes! Geek! Love it. Lord of the Rings. I'm proud of you, Gene. I didn't think, I didn't know if I didn't know that. Did anybody else know that? Naomi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love geeking out on stuff like that. So this comes from uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, a famous novel by J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and it's part of a poem. It's part of a prosophy, prophecy on one of the main characters, Aragorn, also the ranger, known as the ranger. And he has metaphorically in the story of Lord of the Rings been compared to as a yet-to-be-realized Christ the King figure a yet-to-be-realized Christ the King figure, metaphorically. And so the, this line fall, falls into a greater poem here. And the poem goes like this, All that is gold does not glitter. Not all who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. And the crownless again shall be king. 
And so in light of renewal, in light of this idea of the lost Messiah, the idea of deep roots, that sometimes the frost comes and um, in our questioning can kind of kill off the fruit that was there for a season. But yet there's these deep roots that as we stay connected to God, root us and ground us in love. And as we think about the shrouded glory of Jesus, and as the question comes back to us that he asked his mother, I want us to sit with this question. What are you about? Jesus was about being connected to his father. What are you about? What are we about? Not what do you do? Not what are your hobbies? Not what do you like? Not how are you in pain? But what are you about? And Cornerstone, what are we about? Like, how would you answer that question if you were asked that? Like, that's a, that's a serious question. And not like these other things such as hobbies or work or the, the joy and suffering that we experience. Those are important. But what if instead of saying, uh, oh, hey, Mike, nice to meet you. How are you doing? Uh, what, what do you do? Like, could you imagine if somebody came up to you like a, a kind of relative stranger and be like, hey, Mike, what are you about? <laughs> like, uh, uh, like, so as we go back to, into worship and as we go to the communion table, let's sit with that question for a minute. I would ask you to sit with that question for a minute. What are you about? And Cornerstone, we as a church, what are we about? Let's ask that both in a vulnerable way. I'm about this, even maybe I shouldn't be. And what is the desire and the hope of uh, a very life-giving answer to what are we about? Because the lost Messiah was not lost. He was found in the Father at all times. Him and the Father were one, and he stayed connected with his Father. And the thing that this, uh, the question of, you know, why were you seeking me? Didn't you know I needed to be in my Father's house? Showed what he was ultimately all about. And that didn't mean being in church all the time. That didn't mean being in the temple all the time. That meant being in the Father's presence, no matter where he was all the time. So I'm going to call the the worship team back up, uh, and we're going to sit with this question. What are you about for a moment? As the worship team comes back up and we head to communion, reflect on that question for a moment. What are you about? What are we about? Mark and Virginia, the Niesels, I saw them somewhere. They will be available for prayer during communion. They will be over in this corner in front of the art. If you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life right now, if you just want prayer for like this question, like what am I about? Just to have somebody be like, I don't know what I'm about. For somebody to pray over you, for the Holy Spirit to give some revelation, for you to be even more connected Uh, I don't like making New Year's resolutions, but going into the new year in a a deeper, different, holistic, life-giving way, have them pray for you. Communion will be served over in this corner uh, by Craig and Holly, right? Yeah, Craig and Holly will be serving communion over there. And in a moment, Louisa is going to read from 1 Corinthians 10. And uh, in my opinion, I would say this was... Uh, one of the things that the Apostle Paul says that the church should be about. And that's about Christ crucified. What is the church about? Not about saving souls, not about doing good works, uh, not about this or that, but about Christ crucified. And out of that comes everything 
else. So let's sit with the question for a moment. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is there one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord.